just after 9 o'clock on a Saturday morning, and that must mean it's time again for Money Management with Opus 111 Group's Mike Mail. Here's Mike. Good morning. Welcome to Money Management. This is Mike Mail. I'm with the Spokane Office of the Opus 111 Group. It's Saturday at 9 Pacific, so we're here to talk with you about the markets, the economy, and some of the things that have been going on over the past week or so, as far as those are concerned, in order to help maybe give you some better insights and make some good informed decisions about what it is you're doing about investing and related topics. Well, it was, uh, as they say, an interesting week, Um, quite different than the week before, wouldn't you agree? Uh, We'll give you the uh, proverbial data dump here to start things off. Yesterday, the Dow ended higher by 274 points to 34,754. The S&P closed at 4463. The Nasdaq finished trading at 13,893. Russell 2000 closed the week at 2083. Gold settled at 1929 an ounce. Silver at 2494 an ounce. Crude dropped uh, from a week ago to uh, 104.70 a barrel. The 10-year treasury at uh, 2.15% and soft white wheat was lower at 11.46 a bushel. I think one of the biggest things that happened this week that turned things around uh, was the, uh, you know, we've talked about the certainty of uncertainty. You know, that's what happens in the stock market and, well, any markets. that means basically that there you can be sure that you don't know nor anyone else knows exactly what's going to happen in the markets uh, regardless of whatever else is going on but one of one of the biggest x factors was removed this week uh, when mr powell and his folks made the announcement about uh, interest rates now we'll talk about that more in detail in a while but right now the idea is is that the traders all say okay we know what the plan is now we can make determinations we can make assumptions etc etc based on what has been floating out there for multiple months now so that i think had a lot to do with it see because markets are ultimately non-emotional i mean you know a lot of folks are saying how can the stock market be doing well when you have all this trouble and travail over in Europe? Well, again, uh, this is not about emotions. This is not about individual folks. This is numbers. And emotional responses uh, are short-lived in terms of what happens in the marketplace. We talked about that uh, over the last couple of weeks, that events such as what's going on in Ukraine tend to have uh, short but significant effects on markets. And I think, too, that uh, this certainly underscores the uh, futility of trying to time markets. Because if you were, and one of the things happened, not this past week, the week before last, a lot of people were doing what's called, putting on what they call short positions, meaning you make money when an issue drops. Okay, well, this week uh, they were covering those positions and having to buy it at whatever prices 
so to limit their losses because things uh, instead of continuing down to perdition uh, turned and started moving higher and uh, that didn't go with the uh, narrative that was flying around last week so I uh, like I say uh, don't try to time the market the only thing you're gonna do is create a drive-through ulcer in yourself you know there's way more money tied up now in tech stocks than there was even in 2009. Now I'm talking whether we're talking about uh, mutual funds, ETFs, uh, individual holdings, index funds, you pick it. Uh, and you know the, the S&P uh, itself is only down 7.2% year to date. It's been down more than that, obviously, uh, but right now it's only down 7.2, and only three of the uh, of the sectors that make up the S&P 500 have uh, underperformed the index. Communications, which is the tech-heavy sector made up of Facebook, Google, Netflix, and related. The consumer discretionary sector, which uh, Amazon is the biggest part, and tech itself. Mark Hafley, he's chief investment officer at UBS, he said, uh, and I'm quoting, the rally in the S&P 500 has lifted the index nicely, illustrating how rapidly markets can turn if investor perception of geopolitical risk change, unquote. That's a biggie. I think that's what happened, you know, because in my opinion, the Russian uh, invasion I mean, this is like a like a clown show. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm just amazed at how inept they've been. Uh, but be that as it may. Uh, so what what I'm getting to is that the perceived uh, might of the Russian army, etc., has uh, not exactly come to pass. And I think a lot of people have reassessed the risks and danger longer term. Now, of course, that's going to play out. I'm not trying to an anticipate anything, but again, they just, <laughs> they're not been very impressive. And uh, Mr. Hafley goes on to say, it reinforces our view that simply selling risk assets and read that as stocks is not the best response to the war in Ukraine. Now, you know, I was saying the earlier that uh, those three sectors are, are the, have underperformed the index as a whole. Well, energy is the loan sector with positive returns this year, but it only makes up 4% of the S&P. And so you don't get that much of a move in the overall S&P from the energy sector moving. There is no energy exposure in the NASDAQ, the NASDAQ 100. So if you're in either of those two indices, you have low to no exposure to energy, just so you know that. And so you have a low weighting to the best performer and a high weighting to the worst performer. That's not the way it's supposed to be. So, you know, higher inflation, higher economic growth, and higher rates, that's the type of environment that tends to favor what they call the value stocks. Um, so you might want to uh, kind of look at that. You know, you can hang other things onto your portfolio, some specific issues, uh, ETFs, funds, what have you, that maybe, uh, you know, some have energy exposure so that you're at least in the game, so we say. You don't have to totally sell those other things, but just understand, you get, you're you not in the game if you're just in the S&P and NASDAQ. 
And one thing I learned this week, um, investors who sell gold, silver, and other precious metal ETFs, now I'm not talking about the metal, but the ETFs, exchange traded funds, you may find your profits are being taxed at a higher rate than other stuff like traditional stocks and bonds because the feds, that is say the IRS, treats the ETFs backed by physical precious metals as collectibles for tax purposes. Now, this is according to accountants. I didn't just make this up. Each ETF represents ownership in the underlying metal. So collectibles, you know, that's art, antique coins. They carry a 28% top Fed tax rate on long-term capital gains. So that's, in other words, if you hold it for a year and a day, uh, whatever it is, uh, you can get a better tax treatment. Stocks, bonds, and a lot of other investments have a 20% top tax rate. So, again, just be aware of that. Certainly, uh, as tax time is upon you, uh, you may be getting a tap on the shoulder and say, send more money. <laughs> not, not the kind of conversation you want to have, but at least know that there's a reason for it. Um, and those folks who have owned bonds uh, over the last year or so have suffered serious losses in real terms because of the significant and unexpected rise in the inflation. Similar losses, and even worse, were in the 70s. I mean, that was ugly. And, and this is not a good time to hold bonds, as it could easily get worse. You know, the long-term bull market for bonds that began in the early 80s is over. We've been saying that for a while, but I tell you what, if you're still believing that bonds are the place to be, um, you may want to revisit that thinking. That's all I can say. And, oh, just uh, for what it's worth, uh, this last uh, week in 1999, the Dow crossed 10,000 for the very first time. And for the record, we closed yesterday at 34,754, which is more. And which I use as an example of when you're talking long term and you want to fight inflation, you have to include stocks because, as you know, we didn't have, it wasn't all hearts and flowers since 1999. We had some bad times too, but the returns of, on average, uh, 7 to 10% for stocks in that period of time far and away is higher than what the inflation rate has been over that same period. One thing you can look at on a short-term basis to help give you an idea of how the market is trending is to watch something called the 50-day moving average for the S&P 500. And it, it's very simple. It's the average of the S&P 500 closes over the last 50 days. You know, it's quick and easy. You just measure the market momentum. You know, whenever the index is below the 50-day uh, average, that usually means it's a difficult market. Now, the market tends to be trend-sensitive. You heard me say many times uh, the trend is your friend. And, uh, you know, by that I mean that good markets usually lead to good markets. Bad markets usually lead to more bad markets. And that's why the 50-day uh, average is a, an important thing to kind of keep an eye on. Another aspect is uh, when we go below the 50-day average, it, volatility tends to be a lot higher. There have been lots of big up and down days, but not so many mildly good days when we're in that environment. Now, historically, most of the best and worst daily moves have come when it's under that average, as I said. 
And, you know, most people have it backward. It's not that volatility causes bear markets. That's not true. It's just that bear markets are more volatile. And volatility isn't like some little gremlin, you know, for like the movie that just sits above the market and jumps in and causes all kind of trouble. No, it's, it's part of the market. Prices go down, markets get jittery, more so than when they just kind of churn around when the markets are generally considered higher. So let's zing to the economy because one of the things that is not being talked about at all, in my humble opinion, is the strength of the underlying economy. There's too much focus by my friends in the financial media about the noise in the market. You know, there's what they call signal and noise. And noise is just exactly what it is. Noise. It takes you off the focus of the signal, what's most important. So let's just talk about what's really going on under the uh, surface, if you will. Did you know, were you aware that today's unemployment rate is lower than every single month from the 1970s? 80s, 90s, and 00s. Now, that's pretty, I mean, that is just strong stuff. You know, the U.S. private sector has been deleveraging since 2008 and 9. The average amount of leverage, aka borrowing, uh, for the typical person or corporation is now back to levels we haven't seen since the late 1960s. And when you adjust it for inflation, it's probably even somewhat lower. This is one very underappreciated bright spot since it suggests that our financial situation, that is to say the private sector of the U.S. economy, is quite healthy. And as an aside, you know, I do, a, well, maybe you don't know, but I do a, a morning report with Teresa Dave um, every day uh, about, you know, with what's going on in the market, little spots. And I put in the... the uh, soft white wheat grain price. People say, why you put that in there? Well, take a drive from Spokane and you'll notice that the rolling hills are covered with this grass-looking stuff. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, here, here's a note from uh, the Washington State Grain Commission. It says, according to those folks, more than 35% of the world's population look at wheat as a staple food and it provides 20% of the world's nutritional needs. And in 2020, the most recent data, Washington, just Washington alone, Washington's wheat production almost hit a record high, but drought caused 21 to have its lowest production since 64. So hopefully this year we'll get back to even and they'll be able to take advantage of some of these uh, somewhat higher prices. In any regard, what about that oil? It's been pretty nuts, hasn't it? You know, many Americans, especially folks who drive a lot or far to work or <laughs> driving is your work, uh, you know, you're probably seeing the, the pinch. You know, uh, it, it, it's fueling fear, <laughs> fears of further inflation, you know, and some people are saying, yeah, let's waive the gas tax. I heard this from California. It, the, the, only California, right? They raised the taxes there. And now they're sending out $400 checks to people to help pay for the increase in gas. What? What is that? What is that? These, I don't understand those people. They're, they're nuts. I'm sorry. I, uh, it, but it, <laughs> it makes no sense, whatever. Um, and then also say, well, yeah, we're going to have a gas tax holiday. 
that is uh, non-eventful. If that that is strictly political eyewash, it has no significant economic bearing anywhere. So, you know, they may want to pat themselves on the back, but it doesn't do anything for us. So, you know, there's really little reason to think that oil hovering near where it was during an expansion about eight years ago is automatically cause for trouble today. The big reason why oil isn't hampering growth is that today we're much less energy dependent than we were in decades past. You know, rising fuel costs are not great. I'm not I'm not gonna try and no, it's not great. But the share of consumer spending that energy takes and energy and consumer spending is two thirds of GDP. So energy's effect has fallen. January energy consumption was basically right around the pre-bug levels, and it's uh, well below the 2011-2014 levels when oil was last at current prices. So again, it, it, in terms of its effect, it's not as wi- wide-reaching. You know, we had uh, te- uh, the st- oil settled at 104 uh, or something yesterday. Uh, but it, it went as high as 130 a week ago, and then this week it dropped to 96. Once again, perceptions change, and so there go the prices. You know, and so oil is well off its high, and for now at least. And you know, we may have seen the max intensity of that Russia-driven commodity price in both wheat and fuel. And uh, you know, month changing gears. Uh, the futures are prices of oil oil a week excuse me a week a year out are trading at $83 which is $20 some less than where they are now they don't forecast oil prices but they do reflect the market outlook when tight supply demand conditions aren't expected to last you know uh, it's so it's a it's a, a significant event now but it doesn't appear to have long lived uh, effect now this inflation thing, you know, that's obviously a little different situation. But the ten-year Treasury note, and it is the reference point for long-term borrowing costs all around the world. It's highly sensitive to inflation and inflation expectations. But that note is not signaling much long-term concern right now. It's just two point one percent. Yeah, it's up from 1.37 over the past six months, but even at 2.1, which is where it was yesterday, it remains below nearly all pre-bug levels. So, see, it's all relative. Folks are getting this. If they haven't had this experience before, this is all new and scary to them because, oh my God, it's higher than it was. Well, yeah, but on a real basis, uh, comparative basis, it's pretty non-eventful. So to bring it back to 2.1, I'm talking about the uh, 10-year interest rate, it only brings it back to its average level over the past 10 years. Now, if it were to go up to the average of 4.6%, that's where the 10-year was from 2000 up to 2008 and 9 interest payments on many loans would more than double. And in the latter half of the 90s, the 10-year averaged 6.1%. Now, at the time, and I was there, <laughs> this was perceived as a low rate. 
and today people would be doing reverse half gainers out of their uh, at least first floor window maybe their basement window I don't know but anyhow they'd get all upset if it was at 6.1 percent now see it's all relative that's what you have to understand is it higher or lower this is how markets work they work on a comparative basis are we higher or lower than what we were previously but you know it was almost almost exactly two years ago that the fed lowered rates well basically to zero and and while a rate increase may get a lot of attention like we were talking right before the break Please remember, it's probably going to be an increase of just 0.25%. Now, let me see if I can put that in context for you. What, imagine a dollar, all right? So a dollar is 100 cents. So 1% is 1 cent. This is 1 quarter of 1 cent. So it's not huge. So the Fed is still a long way from restraining the economy. You know, real interest rates, that means you adjust it for inflation, are still well into negative territory. So the Fed said on Wednesday that they're going to raise their benchmark Fed funds rate, that's what they lend money to banks at, uh, to this range that would be between 0.25 and 0.5. Um, and they're talking about, well, how long is it going to be and how many times are you going to raise it? As I said at the top, we're talking about one of the things that helped the market was the Fed actually saying, here's what we're going to be doing. Well, here's what they said. The Fed, that is. They're going to put over the next meetings that they have, they're going to be raising it probably every meeting at point five percent so you say well crakey you know you were just talking about how 0.25 is nothing and seven of them is going to get pretty big well um seven of them would put the rate at 1.8 percent if inflation is five percent that's still not enough you still have more growth than what you'd like so they're really talking about with 11 25 point basis point hikes into counting into next year it would still be up only to the end of 2.8 by the end of next year and that still would be likely lower than the inflation rate so we'd have real negative rates that's after after inflation in other words you get say you know a two percent rate and your inflation is three percent well you're minus one percent real rate um so the experience is that inflation doesn't fall until interest rates are ahead of the inflation rate. Now, we know rates are going to rise and fall, but nobody ever knows by when or how much. I'd like to have a dollar for every person says, Mike, what do you think interest rates are going to do? And I'm like, uh, higher or lower? You know, I mean, that's it. That's the only logical answer you can give. Although at this point, higher is probably the trend. You know, owning quality companies that regularly return cash to shareholders, that's a definite solid strategy for all rate environments. And as I was saying earlier, you know, in, in terms of like bonds, uh, perhaps uh, transition some of your asset holdings from bonds into high quality dividend paying stocks or, you know, funds, ETFs that have pay good dividends. Um, they tend to continue to grow over time, whereas bonds are fixed income. Now, 
the Fed, this was as expected. They raised the short-term rates by, uh, again, uh, one quarter of 1%. And that was the first time since 2018. Well, okay. Uh, that doesn't mean anything other than that was the first time since 2018. So the, the reality is, is that when, when the Fed is tightening, that means the Fed believes the economy is on solid footing. So I think we can agree that's a good time. Um, <coughs> excuse me. The fact that they're actually doing the rates is, is a big deal because think of it this way. Here, here's, here's perhaps how to translate it into real money. For every $144,000 someone borrows, the interest expense will now be $1 more each day. Each day. So, you know, the Fed wasn't hiding this. I mean, they, they knew this was coming. Now, there's nothing to be automatically bearish about rate hikes. This is the Fed's policy is just one small input into how the whole economy operates. It gets a lot of press, but it's, you know, it's not that big a piece of the whole thing. So like any other policy move or development, you have to look at it in the context of what else is going on. So, <clears throat> excuse me, nothing new to get nervous about. Uh, the markets don't like new words. We like expected words delivered in the same order, which is with little as variation as possible. That's Mr. Powell knows that very well. He said, and I'm quoting, this was last Wednesday, we have the tools that we need and we're going to use them. We have a plan over the course of this year to raise interest rates steadily and also to run off the balance sheet. We'll take the necessary steps to ensure that high inflation does not become entrenched while also supporting a strong labor market, unquote. Oh, oh he did add, if we conclude that it would be appropriate to move more quickly, will do so. And, you know, they've got a tough gig right now. Inflation is coming from the commodity surge from the Ukraine issue and the ongoing supply chain crisis. And the fact that the government has thrown tons of money at the economy, uh, the latter being the main reason for the inflation, um, you know, you're going to see inflation continue to rise over the near term. But the thing is, is... I wouldn't call it transitory, but long-lasting. You know, it's it's different when it's just moving higher and you can see the mechanical reasons for it as opposed to it being part of the warp and weave of the overall economy. Now, a couple things from the economy. Uh, new home construction. Wait, let me do this. If uh, I, I'm sorry, but I forgot this. This is regarding prices, the, you know, the uh, difference in the prices. A monthly payment on a $375,000 home with an interest rate of 4% is $220 higher than the payment on a similarly priced home would have been in December 2020 when the uh, mortgage rates were low. This is according to Realtor.com. So with a 20% down payment, that would have added $79,200 to a 30-year mortgage. So there is an effect of rates going higher. Leave us not make light of it. But by the same token, I can assure you, too, that the markets have operated uh, rather 
well with higher interest rates for some time. As we had stated earlier, you know, 6% was like, ooh, that was a pretty good rate. But now people would be grabbing their chest and, you know, looking for heart medicine if uh, they, to they told you the interest rates are going to be going to 6 <laughs> So anyway, um, with regard to the uh, other parts of the economy, new home construction up in Feb, fourth gain in the past five months. That's the fastest rate in nearly 16 uh, years. And uh, both single family and multifamily construction uh, was uh, helping. Industrial activity continued its rec uh, recovery, second gain on the heels of January's increase, which was the strongest in a year. Business inventories remain lean. Order backlogs are elevated. Demand continues to outstrip supply. Don't be looking for diving off any bridges here, folks. Things, the economy is good. Don't listen to these people on the TV. They're trying to sell you toothpaste if you stick around and listen to their story about how the world's going to end. But it hasn't ended yet. And there's been lots of times when it could have. I think we can agree. Um... Let's see. Uh, oh, yes. And then uh, existing home sales fell sharply after a jump in Jan. Uh, you know, housing market is trying to find its footing because you've got mortgage rates going up and so too are prices. So you've got a lack of available supply, but the uh, number of permits is up high and these folks have a, these folks meaning the builders, have a... Uh, potential backlog of homes. Now, this is all going to work out, I promise. We've had this issue before, we'll have it again. Uh, but until the supply catches up with demand, you're going to still see these discrepancies between higher prices driven by the demand for what's out there currently. J.P. Morgan strategist Mislav Mateka. I wonder if he's from Ukraine. I've got a name like that, but anyway. He had this to say, and I'm quoting, The recent moves in a range of commodity prices are extreme, and if these moves hold for a prolonged period of time, the economic damage would be significant. We still do not believe the rec recession needs to be the base outcome and do not see stocks falling from current levels, unquote. You see, the, these folks, and they all do it, I mean, it's just how it goes, could, maybe, if, you know... They're not saying this is going to happen. It's just their opinion. So that's what you do. You distill them all and say, mm, that's interesting. Now, Goldman Sachs, they cut. They had uh, the S&P ending this year at 5,100. Well, they cut that. And uh, they, cut, they say the larger risk to the S&P earnings stems from higher commodity prices. You think they look over each other's shoulder? And in turn, weaker consumer demand and economic growth. They revised the year end uh, to 4,700, uh, which would still be about a 10% upside from here. So uh, they're hedging their bets, as it were. Now, for reference purposes, you know, people have been beating in their chests and wailing and moaning about how the market's down. Oh, my goodness, this is so terrible. You know, think about this. If you're on a cruise ship, right? And you're on you're on a placid seat. There's I mean there is like no waves. It's sunny. You're just moving along and having a good time. And and you've been doing that for I don't know, say a, a couple of weeks. And all of a sudden uh, you know you get a storm. 
And now the ship is doing the uh, funky Broadway. You know, it's kind of up and down and back and sideways. And I can assure you that's not a great way to travel. But you're still on the ship. You're still getting to where you're going to go. This is what you're doing right now. I mean, you're going to get these bumps. You're going to get these uh, churning seas. But as long as you stay on the ship, you'll get to your destination. Okay? The ship being your portfolio, of course. Now, there's always more to the market than just the S&P 500. You know, and I don't have any idea if this is going to turn into a recession, a bear market. Uh, I don't know. Now, personally, I feel that that's not even in the cards, but, you know, it could, right? But I do not ever try to predict short-term markets in the stock market, especially when it is kind of in this uh, sideways mode. <clears throat> You know, a lot of people do, though, think it already feels like a bear market, you know. it's. But staring at prices all day isn't going to make them stop going down. Won't make them go up either. You know, uh, paying more attention to the markets doesn't give you more control over them. Although CNBC, MSNBC, all those people with the talking heads, talking financial heads, um, <laughs> their their viewership goes up exponentially when there's bad markets uh, you know my rule of thumb is in a downtown in a downturn don't look at your portfolio you can guess based on your holdings about how much it's down but looking at the values isn't going to change them um, you know people using this as an opportunity to scare you will never get you back in there is a big difference between people who get excited about bear markets because things get on sale and those folks who get all excited because they want to watch the world burn. And they're both out there. Now, the per the perma bears <laughs> who never met a bad thing that they didn't like, that well, they're happily tell you why things are getting worse every day. They use scare tactics and put all kinds of arguments arguments out there that do sound intelligent because they always have a grain of truth in there. But they'll never get you back into the markets after trying to scare you out of them. Bear markets are buying opportunities. Corrections are buying opportunities. When stocks are down big, they tend to have pretty solid returns going forward. Now, our current losses are nowhere near as bad as past examples, as you all know. And the future doesn't have to look like the past. But buying stocks on sale has proven to be a pretty good strategy over time. And history gives us the context. It doesn't give you a crystal ball. I, I love market history. I like looking at historical data when it comes to the markets. It gives you a context, a range of potential outcomes, and helps you give you a sense of what's really possible. But you cannot predict the future from the past. Past performance does not indicate future results. So don't waste your time. There's no use for the words never or always when it comes to markets because things that have never happened before happen all the time. And things that seemingly work all the time, well, they do until they don't. You know, it's been a while since we've had an extended correction. Markets move faster than ever with all these uh, computer-driven programs. If you look at every correction since 2009, the recoveries have all been V-shaped and pretty fast. The volatilities are going to test your emotions and, uh, how we say, intestinal fortitude. And the extended downturns test your patience and resilience. 
you know, there's too many moving parts right now to predict anything like a recession. And speaking of talking heads, Professor Richard Taylor, he wrote, uh, he's a, he got, well, he got a Nobel Prize in 2017 writing about behavioral economics. <clears throat> and he said, and I, excuse me, he said, and I'm quoting, I was interviewed by one of the financial news networks on their morning shows, and they asked me, what should people do the next time markets are getting volatile? I said my advice would be to turn off this channel and switch to ESPN. He said that's apparently not a great thing to say to financial uh, journalists because they switched immediately to a commercial. <laughs> that's the point. You know, if you're not talking about the end of the world, they don't want to know about it. So, you know, it's ultimately the increase in the money supply that's responsible for our inflation. It doesn't matter whether government spending or the budget deficit is high or low, labor supply is growing or shrinking, free trade up or down. Inflation is based on decisions made by central banks. That's plural. And if the money supply grows too fast, you get more inflation. If it grows too slowly or shrinks, you get deflation. And if if they do it right, you get stability. So on the plus side for the economy and financial markets, we have a huge pile of cash just sitting on corporate and household balance sheets that's built up during the pandemic. According to Bank America's fund manager survey, we're near multi-decade highs for cash levels, such as in 1208, uh, July of 2012, October 2016, and April of 2020. According to the Bank of America, U.S. consumers and corps are holding a record, you ready for this, $19 trillion in cash. That's up 35% from 2019. This boggles my mind. Why so much money earning nothing in a rising stock market is a source of ongoing wonder to me. But as we like to say, that's what makes markets. So... Very high cash levels are a good thing. Investors being scared to death is historically a net positive for stocks, not a negative. They call that the wall of worry. Heavy cash positions are fuel for a bull market. That's the money that ends up chasing into the end of cycles because they're usually parked in cash near the beginning. Economic growth is continuing in the U.S. Corporate profits are very high, near records in many cases. Long-term interest rates, though they moved up a little bit recently, still low enough to make stocks attractive. You know, in a better world, the Fed would operate in the background. Investors would ignore it. But in today's world, uh, it's kind of hard to do that, isn't it? You know, forward-looking markets are not caught up in daily headlines. They care more about issues over the next three to 30 months. And as these government restrictive policies and lockdowns are finally being removed lingering restrictions end and the supply chain disruptions fade including from the war price pressures should uh, subside sooner than later now we expect consumption patterns to trend back toward more services based economic activities may not lead to outright price declines in goods but likely to level off with inflation generally Well, I hope this has all proved helpful to you all, and uh, you aren't uh, uh, being too upset about what's going on in the markets. Keep the long-term view in mind, folks. Stay with quality. That's the bottom line. And speaking of quality, go Zags. Let's keep this thing going. we got to keep the dance going. 
Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back next week with more market news. This is Money Management. I'm Mike Mayo with the Spokane office of the Opus 111 Group. Join us again next Saturday morning at the same time for the financial insight, opinion, and perspective of Money Management with Mike Mayo. Have a question or comment? You can reach Mike at our website, opus111group.com. Thank <laughs> you.